Currency Press is Australia's foremost publisher of the performing arts. We've been sharing Australian stories since 1971, and with those stories we've also shared insights, ideas and critiques. We think of them as the stories about stories, the stories behind stories, preparing us for the journey we're about to undertake. Hello, I'm Toby Leon, and this is Not In Print. Today, Catherine Brisbane is going to read her introduction to The Floating World by John Romerill. Catherine, with her husband Philip Parsons, founded Currency Press in 1971. She was its publisher for 30 years. Until, in 2001, she founded Currency House, a non-profit association to assert the value of the performing arts in public life. Catherine was also a theatre critic for 21 years, including a long stint as the national critic of The Australian. And over the years, she has published extensively on the history of Australian theatre, as well as receiving many awards for service to the performing arts. Here's Catherine reading her introduction, which was first published in 1975. John Romerill in The Floating World has come home to the character of Les Harding via the international scene and a wry kind of Marxism which revels in the variety of some of us being less equal than others. Of all the contemporary Australian playwrights, he stands out as one of the most concerned to grapple with the Australian, not just in the immediate environment, but as a social and political animal in a world context. As an adjunct prop writer, he was, in his early work, preoccupied with the invasion of Australia by American materialism and moral standards, and with the dependency which drew us into the Vietnam War. But as a dramatist, he was with equal passion concerned about the depredations by mass pressures upon the individual. Without exception, the principal characters in Romero's work are victims of the system, and he shows them to be doubly so. They are helpless because the social system exists to thwart them, and they are helpless because their breeding within the system has deprived them of the initiative to be anything but victims. Organised society, as we know it, says Romerill, breeds its own disorders from which only the imagination can release us. The threat may be real, but it comes from within ourselves and it is for us, firstly, to recognise. It's not that human beings cannot bear too much reality, says Harry at the end of the play. It's that reality is too much to bear. This is the message of Romerill's play Chicago, Chicago, in which the world becomes a consuming psychiatric ward. And I don't know who to feel sorry for, in which Celia and Lenny have built themselves a trap of conventions, habits and me- meaningless gestures of escape within a society without character, an imitation of life, next door, next town, next country. Again and again, in all his plays... The intolerable reality is set aside in lusty but ironic and self-depriving game-playing. There is anger under most of Rommel's writing, underneath the joviality. For like most of our playwrights, comedy comes naturally to him. The Floating World is a savage play, savage not only at the existence of the enormities it names, but at our past and still present failure to admit to them. It's the particular mark of a genuine dramatic artist that he can see further and faster 
than his audience, and indeed the success of The Floating World is due, in the first instance, to Romerol's frank acceptance of our shameful history of xenophobia and his judgment that he can surprise his audience into a frank acceptance of it too. Diagnosis of the symptoms is the first step in treating the disease. Romerol opens the play with a bird's eye view of his floating world. Harry, the one-man band, punctuating his words with a roll of the sticks, drums up a picture of that conquering, safely insulated womb of the businessman, the international jet plane, carrying its passengers from one identical airport to the next, seeing nothing, understanding nothing. From there, we swoop upon the ungraceful realities of Les, middle-aged, carrying a beer gut, aggressively out of place on his pleasure ship vomiting out the last Australian cooking on his first day of his cherry blossom cruise. His predicament brings out the worst in Les, and we sum him up, an ex-prisoner of war of the Japanese still nursing his belief that the British betrayed the Australian troops, still smarting under the superiority of British social manners. We know the type. He and Admiral Robinson struggle in their opposing camps until they force themselves to advance waving the old familiar flags of beer and sexual anecdotes. They retreat to the bar, seeing nothing, understanding nothing. Scene three takes us to the last absurdity. A Japanese salesman recites in an incomprehensible accent the unhappily phrased instructions which accompany the Dippy Bird toy, a mechanical stalk which, when set in motion, nods its head towards the glass of water until it reaches the rim and then falls back to begin again. Pointless, mindless progress. Seeing nothing, understanding nothing. So here, in three scenes, Romerol subtly lays out his question. What does Australia's long-delayed truce with Asia amount to? its cultural treaties, its acceptance of Japan as its major trading partner, its recognition of communist China? Are we embracing our position as a leader of the Pacific world at last? Or are we merely succumbing to an international dippy bird culture? Such answer as he gives is an angry one. Much of the comedy of the play is supplied by scenes familiar to Australian entertainment. Irene attempting to pass off as culture the bird's nest of half-understood information she has gathered from her women's magazines, Liz pricking her false refinement with his bawdy poems, the comic with his fountain of tasteless repartee. Romerol traps us into laughing heartlessly at the familiar sight of their crudities, confirmation of our own superiority, and then step by step leads the joke to our own door. The action of the play follows, impressionistically, the rituals of an organised cruise. Superficially, the play might be a parody of any such package holiday. But underneath the comedy is a portrait of disintegration. Liz's world is breaking up. The symptoms are hallucinations, but the cause is reality. This is the paradox that Romwell puts to us, that the familiar, the crude, brazen, matey Australian is the illusion, and the reality is too much to bear. The comic, brusque and confident at the start in his bright, smiling carapace, 
as it chipped away piece by piece until we begin to see glimpses of the trembling flesh inside. Irene, in her own cosmetic armour, betrays word by word how her conforming ambitions have emptied her marriage. I didn't think, she moans, thinking back for the first time after her husband is confined to a straitjacket. And for Liz, the way things are fixed, the end is inevitable. Liz is a man under threat, and we see it from the moment we meet him, confronting Robertson with guilt for Gallipoli and the Straits of Johor. Australia has, as Alan Ashbold points out, a long, unbroken history of xenophobia. Romrod examines this sense of threat and very carefully puts the case that the undefined they, who bugger men like Liz, they, the enemy, the cause of it all, their origins are within Liz himself and derived from the same source. Our fear of authority, in fact, of being governed by an alien, in turn, historically, by the Poms, the Mix, the Wogs, the Yanks, the Chinks, the Nips, derives from a deep-seated inability to come to terms with ourselves. It is the overwhelming need to conform, the energy spent on keeping up one's defences that bring about tragedy in Romerell's work. The extreme alternative to conformity for Les is madness. Romerell's writing was developed in the tiny La Mama Theatre in Carlton where he experimented in the 60s with a free form of realist writing and an audience almost in the laps of the actors. The action flows easily from one scene to another on a bare stage with few properties, taking the rhythm from the metabolism of the characters rather than from a feeling for order in dramatic structure in the conventional sense. The shape is Brechtian to the point that the author makes variations upon his argument in successive scenes to keep his dialectic before our consciousness. But beyond that, while determined to keep that society in our sights, his primary concern is to exhume those subterranean parts of his characters which they keep hidden from society and which society itself has caused to be hidden. It's not the apparent reality we are seeing in the floating world, but reality as it is to Liz. In time, the play becomes a stream of consciousness emanating from Liz's brain with occasional electrical faults in the circuit. As he retreats into his past, the tourist rituals become more military and the comics dialogue more authoritarian. Through the multiple roles undertaken by the waiter Williams in the comic, the author keeps in the audience's mind the fact that Les is losing his grip on the present world. The play becomes an evocation of Les's psychosis and we are made to share the responsibility. The effect is cumulative and enveloping, a fact recognised in the Pram Factory production which placed both actors and audience on the deck of a ship enclosing them within a green cage behind which lurked the jungle green figures of McLeod and the Japanese officer. Romerell tries when he can to place his actors and audience in the same space and his plays perform best on the open stage. In the end, Les has vanished altogether behind the green cage. The controls on his life blown into fragments. He is floating free again a whole man living vividly with all his senses and his language reflects that. 
the man whom we first met vomiting his heart out, in his straitjacket, is well again. Rommel's paradoxical, dramatic use of health and disease is consistent imagery. Pragmatically, of course, Les's restoration is into sickness. The floating world is his memory of beriberi, and his sacrifice, the amputation of effective reality. The sane Les portrays a certain sensibility, a poetic yearning stunted by his society's confusion of sensibility with weakness, and which he sublimates in limericks. But in his nightmares from the past, Les's imagination is free, vivid and precisely expressed, ranging a world of thought and experience of which we had no inkling. The typical Aussie is to us real at last. What is it that Romerol makes of his green cage? Why does it bring freedom and at the same time madness to Liz? Liz's true life was lived as he walked through the valley of death in Burma. He saw and felt it all, but he did not understand it. Instead, he repressed it deeply. At the surrender, he returned home, as so many others did, too weary of spirit to think afresh, submitting himself uncaring to the authority of an employer and a wife. By the time we meet him, it is clear he has exchanged one prison for another, better furnished perhaps, haunted by dippy birds. But Romerol takes the analogy further. Les's world is governed by war. His relationship with Irene is shown in skirmishes. His social exchanges with Robinson, his suspicions of the waiter, his accusations of spies are all small declarations of war. Les needs his enemy to convince himself of his freedom. The most fascinating aspect of the play, if we read it as a study of xenophobia, is John Rommel's choosing as the triumphant justification of Les's life, not the moral or military victories of the Pacific War, but a time when his worst fears were realised. To one living as defensively as Les, the Burma-Thailand Railway must have been a glorious opportunity to live out our national paranoia, to be literally stabbed in the back by those we had for generations believed capable of it, and in turn to kill the yellow bastards. World War II clearly taught Les nothing. It only re-consecrated the myth of mateship, confirmed a century's conditioning in fear, and gave us fuel for another 50 years of anti-Japanese prejudice. Seen from this view, no amount of goodwill towards our trading partners, no flying in jet planes or cherry blossom cruising, no cars or radios or dippy birds could make up to less for the vividness of his confirmation of the Australian identity by doing hard labour as a white coolie. The point is not to suffer the world but to change it, says Harry. But Les is not listening. He's happily powerless in his asylum prison. He's well again. His identity is confirmed. Now, after 40 years, the questions Romerol asks about our capacity to face ourselves remain in the mind. Thank you for listening to this episode of Not In Print. We hope you enjoyed hearing more about this great Australian play. You can find out more about who we are and view our full catalogue at currencypress.com.au. 
And if you have any comments or questions about this episode or any other episode, we'd love to hear from you. Just search for Currency Press on Facebook or Twitter and drop us a line. This episode was produced by Currency Press.